Reconciliation, Australian Real Progressive acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respect to their elders, past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders peoples today. Joining me now is Andrea Johnson. He's running for the Victorian federal electorate seat of Higgins in the upcoming election for the Reason Party. Andrew has worked across such diverse fields as agriculture, the arts and education. Thank you for joining me, Andrew. Thanks for having me on, Darren. No problems at all. Um, I recently interviewed Sam Holland for the New Liberals, TNL, for the seat of Ford in Queensland. So to be fair to you, the questions are going to be very similar, okay? All right, sounds good. Okay, let's start off with um, you telling us a little bit about yourself and the electorate of Higgins, because my only knowledge of Higgins is that it was um, Peter Costello's seat way back when, and I couldn't even tell you who the local member is today. Um, Yeah, so Higgins, I'll start with the electorate. The electorate's the important part in many ways. Um, Higgins has been held by the Liberals for its entire existence as the seat. The current uh, member is Dr. Caddy Allen. Um, it's been the seat that quite a few Liberals have launched uh, what you might call sterling careers from. It's two Prime Ministers have held this seat, Harold Holt and John Gorton, I think was the other one. So it's been a really strong Liberal heartland for a while, but uh, attitudes uh, have been changing and the numbers have been shifting away from them and dissatisfaction of the way that the Liberals are operating has been growing in the community. So there's it's becoming a much more interesting and a much more live seat um, for people listening in who aren't familiar with the splits of uh, all of Australian uh, federal electorates. It's in Melbourne's inner southeast, uh, encompassing Turak, South Yarra, Paran, Malvern, East Malvern, Ashburton, Carnegie, Murrumbina, uh, Ashwood, Glen Iris, 
um i think that's pretty much the the most of the the ge the geography of it and a little bit about yourself please andrew yeah sure thing so um i've lived in higgins basically all of my life um i earn most of my money these days as a swimming teacher which i've been um for about 17 years doing that as an as an occupation so um been right in amongst the community as part of a whole lot of uh, kids growing up and learning to swim and then going on that's been a a part of my life that i've been heavily involved with um you mentioned before the the arts as um an era I've worked in a lot. I've uh, had shows on at, I think, the last five Melbourne International Comedy Festivals, a few Fringe Festivals. Um, I've done voiceover work and things like that. So I've worked in quite a few diverse um, diverse industries and seen a whole lot of different walks of life. That's pretty impressive. Um, is there anything that we may be familiar with that we may have heard you on? Um, what might you have heard me on? Um I've done some voiceovers on um, some shows on some of the community TV channels. So some of the four-wheel drive enthusiast shows. You might have heard me in my slightly grittier aspect doing um, announcements for uh, some of those sort of programs. I've done work for um, induction training videos for various corporate things. So I don't know if you've ever worked in a, a warehouse or some sort of industry like that you might have heard me extolling you to always use the correct ppe at all times and things like that i've done a lot of ppe courses so i very well may have heard your voice now i might get onto something what may or may not be the hard-hitting questions mm -hmm. you said um how will i phrase this the demographics of higgins has been changing a bit so this one's a bit of a tough one, I think. It's voting day, polling day, ballot day, whatever we actually, whatever term we actually do use in Australia. Mm -hmm. Do you believe that um, convicted felons, like those released and those in custody, should lose their right to cast their vote? If so, why? And if not, why not? No, no, I don't think they should at all. Um, I really think that taking away someone's right to vote is is a hugely, hugely powerful thing to do to someone. It should be treated with absolutely the most gravity in a society that is or is aspiring to be democratic like ours. It really is an enormous thing to to take away someone's right to vote. The um, What it says about sort of excluding someone from society and pushing them back out of out of being involved and having a say, I think that in the first instance is really has enormous gravity and enormous effect. People who have been convicted and have served time have enough struggles in trying to get a, a life back on track without having sort of that symbolism on top of it. Also the sort of the idea that, um, that somebody from being convicted shouldn't have any sort of input into how the society that they're still living in goes. I mean, to take a, a, an obvious example for it, the issues with our prison system and with our law and order system, people who've you know ended up on the wrong side of that system have a perspective that should not be ignored and should not be excluded from 
playing a part in shaping the future of that. People who have been part of this system are a big part of how we can make it better and less damaging to our society overall. So, yeah, in short, no, I don't think they should. No, that's understandable because they do become, and are, I guess, uh, some of our marginalised members of society. Absolutely. And I think as, as well, you've got to look at the people who have had convictions for things that we've then gone on as a society to say, actually, regarding that as a crime isn't something that we want to do going forward. And you're then excluding those people. Historically, if you have that approach, those sort of people have been excluded from being able to improve and shape society. You know, if you look back to, you know, the big obvious ones is there's been times when Western society has found that, um, you know, helping to free slaves would be a criminal sort of thing or helping them escape. And to say that anybody who's in favour of that then doesn't get to be part of shaping the future of society, you can obviously see how that's a, a negative effect. Well, on a similar question, we were just talking about, well, slaves, and we did have them in Australia, despite what people think. Mm-hmm. Um, do you believe, still with the legal system, do you believe our criminal justice system disproportionately impacts Indigenous First Nation communities? Well, I think it's one of those things where you can say, I don't think I know. There are, there's plenty of statistics and, and hard evidence on that as an issue. We sort of, it's almost not a question that you can realistically argue. The uh, rate, incarceration rates, the the ages, the effects, the data is there that it really clearly does. That's understandable. And speaking of religion, our Prime Minister Scott Morrison is known to be a Pentecostal. Mm-hmm. And given that, under what circumstances do you believe that the public purse should be used to fund services, including the Prime Ministership, I guess, provided by religious or religiously affiliated institutions, if any? Well, I think probably the first part that springs to mind when you start a conversation about it that is often the the charitable works done by religious organizations and things like that i am a bit of a believer in the idea that charity existing exhibits a um a failure of government in a certain way if if there are things that people need to be privately contributing like that the government should be pulling their socks up and doing something about it if people aren't being fed and aren't being clothed then we're getting some things wrong so in that respect, I think a government has a role to play in charitable works like that. Anything that comes more under the branch of, I suppose, supporting a, a religion for the religion's own sake or spreading that religion or growing that religion's power base, I very firmly say is not the role of government. And in fact, government should be very much kept away from and kept a part of. Um I think that's kind of getting to the heart of what you're asking with that one. It is. I'll just follow that up a little bit Mm. with one or two questions. Say, for example, we have a lot of private religious schools. Like, how much should the public purse support those? Um, It comes down to an extent, I think, of um, how much the school wants to... is, I suppose, whether they're functioning as a school that has a a religious-based endowment to it versus a organisation that is teaching elements of religion as fact. So I don't think that the government should be funding any group that is, or any sort of activity that is based around telling people that a particular religion or religions are correct. If it comes down to that sort of thing, that's not 
that's not the business of schools and it's not the business of government. That's the business of churches or temples or synagogues or um, or family-related sort of activities, but that's not something that the government should be getting involved with. So I understand that a lot of uh, schools have an, a, a religious affiliation. A lot of those are sort of have become more historical than particularly active. But I, um, yeah, I suppose at the heart of it, if the activity being funded is to tell someone that either a religion is true or that you should be following that religion or trying to spread that religion's power base, then that is absolutely not the business of government and not the business of the public purse. So a firm believer in the separation of church and state then? Absolutely, absolutely. And you mentioned if charity is involved, that government, for the lack of a better word, well, really the only word for it is, have has forsaken their duty of care. Yeah, I think that's that's a that's a good way of putting it. That um, yeah, if if people are in need like that and their needs are not being met, then that should be a place where government is stepping into. Um, yeah, I mean, char- I think it's not realistic to think that charity is going to disappear as a thing soon. And I think charity also does provide a. Uh, something of an enriching experience to a lot of people as well. People who want to volunteer their time to help the community and things like that in charitable ways. And I, I, I think I want to clarify that I don't think that that's something that should be eradicated from our society. Cause I think that gives a lot of personal value to people to be able to do that. And the connections that are made within it are very important, enriching to our society. But I think it's more of a case of if there's a point where your private citizens are, having to or feeling the need to put up money because there are people in the society who can't get enough to eat or have shelter or have clothing or have education or medical costs and all those sorts of things, then that's a demonstration that government aren't getting it right. The original social networking and acting responsibly on other people's behalf. Yeah, yeah. And again, I think it's not going to be something that's going to disappear anytime particularly soon because I don't see that there is any short-term way in which government is likely to get all those things right in one go. But I think it should be sort of, it should be an aim for our society that the need for that sort of charity is lost. Or at the very least, minimised until we can lose it, I'm guessing. Absolutely, yeah. On a, on, a, on a sliding scale, as a gradual thing to work towards, yeah. I think overall, we've actually been talking about health and well-being. So um, do you believe that all individuals should have access to high-quality, affordable and non-discriminatory, we talked about that earlier, health coverage, including dental and mental health? Yeah, I think I can go a simple answer on that one. Yes, absolutely I do. I mean, you know, it's it's sort of hard to have any sort of real coherent argument that health across the society isn't a thing that benefits the society and benefits all of us in many, many ways. Um, I suppose the more um, active parts of that question are looking at things like dental, which as I'm sure most people know is excluded from Medicare and I'm yet to hear the coherent argument for why your teeth and gums aren't part of your health system so that that should be put aside beyond a sort of historic and and administrative process, the idea that, well, I mean, again, plenty of data that 
the effects on your health and gums affect your overall health. So the idea that that's excluded from Medicare really doesn't seem to hold up very much of of a, a strong position at all. And then even economically, you can look at the effects of letting people's health deteriorate first and then trying to deal with it afterwards because they haven't had the money to take the preventative steps really doesn't benefit us as a society economically or productively or in the sort of, uh, you know, happiness and and security sort of elements at all. There's hard to see a win from it, really. As an educator, that's got to be pretty disappointing given um, we're, we are always taught, especially in school days, about preventative health first, but rarely is it actually practised. Absolutely, yeah. The old adage that prevention is better than a cure is there's a reason it's a well-known adage. It holds up pretty strongly. So does the Reason Party have adding dental coverage to Medicare as a policy? It's a thing that we've been actually have been discussing and looking at in amongst our um, policy committee to put out our sort of official position on that. So strengthening Medicare and providing those things is broadly and even looking at increases to the aspects of mental health that are to have them done better under Medicare, provide better access and things like that. Basically, if you want to know whether reason's in favour of something, if the data says that it's going to benefit society, reason are probably on board with it. And as I've said, that with with dental, it's pretty strong evidence on that. Now, a two-pronged question. Do you think job seeker payments and the minimum wage should be increased? If so, to what rates and why? Um, I think maybe the first thing to stay on that whole sort of topic is... um, is a thing that I suspect that you probably um, are on board with. Um, as far as job seeker and things like that, I'm in favor of a job guarantee coming in and removing job seeker as a thing. So that's my sort of starting point on that. Taking it from the idea of saying we can't get something like that through parliament and we've got to continue to deal with job seeker existing as it is, then absolutely, I think the rate should be um, should be raised. The idea that um, that people can be in positions like that and are being paid what is under the official poverty line is just obscene. No one in Australia needs to be living in in poverty, and just allowing it to be a structural thing that's basically enforced um, for for people who may not. Um, be across as many of these things as well. I think it's worth pointing out at this point for listeners that it is currently and has been since at least, I think, the 80s, both coalition and labour policy that unemployment should never be allowed to fall below a certain level, that if unemployment falls too low, the government should push the levels back up again um, based on a neoliberal principle. So the idea that the government is ensuring that not everyone who wants a job can get a job and then saying, but if you're in that position that we make sure happens, it's impossible for everyone to get out of, you have to live in poverty. That's just a disgrace. And there's, there's no, there's no real justification for that at all. So, so short answer. Yeah, um, absolutely. I think the rate should be increased. Um, it's a difficult thing to pin down what I would say the rate should be, because I think it's a thing that needs to change um, on an ongoing level, there's not a number that you can say that this is the rate and that's what it should be because we have factors like inflation and CPI and things like that that are going to alter what that rate 
is even based on what sort of principles you're you're exerting there. So it's hard to put a monetary value on it at any sort of one time. Obviously, the government kind of have to. Uh, what I'd be looking towards, again, in a pragmatic sense, saying if I'm ever seriously involved in these conversations, it's probably not going to be me putting up a bill that's going to be doing it. It's going to be me looking at whether I support or don't support a bill that's being put up by the major party, whichever is currently holding government. So my role, I would see more as a shaping of the bill rather than coming in and saying, this is what I think the number should be. So that's my kind of a pragmatic position on it. But I think that what I would be wanting to see would be that people who are unemployed have enough money to not just survive, but live a life that allows them to be fully engaged with the community and the society that they live in, not just enough to get enough calories in you and enough medicine in you that you don't actually collapse and die or have your health deteriorate from underneath you, but that you can live a life that is satisfying and rich and full. So I think that does that kind of uh, cover what you're asking? Absolutely. You've even essentially covered the minimum wage question there because rather than giving a financial number, you said you'd add to the social wage by the shape of it. So mm. I think you've pretty much covered it. Though you did mention the job guarantee, which we haven't yes. actually discussed on this show yet. So could you tell our listeners just a little bit about what that might be? This is unusual to have the guest do this, but let's make this a thought bubble. Yeah, so the um the the job guarantee broadly there's a few sort of variations of it kicking around but generally they all tend to have in common the policy that the government the federal government says that anybody who is willing and able to work but can't find an appropriate job in the private sector the government will guarantee to employ them in a job that is a a real job a proper job not a not some busy work, not digging holes and filling it back in, not a soul-destroying sort of job like that, but a job that contributes to the community. Um, particularly, they should be jobs that tend not to generate a lot of money for someone, so the private sector usually isn't interested in them, but provide value to society. So you can be looking at jobs that are in the environmental realm, somewhat in the, um, the vein of... FDR's environmental cause that um, came up as part of the original New Deal, as part of uh, getting getting back out of the Great Depression and those sorts of things. Um, looking at caring jobs and providing enrichment in life to people who are in aging or disability or isolated kind of aspects of life. So, jobs that are in that sort of reign, they don't. It doesn't compete with the private sector at all. So, it's not using the job using people's labor in the way that at times work for the doll schemes have where there've been ways for people to either do work that isn't very valuable or for organizations that should be employing people at a proper wage to get cheap labor and use that to drive their own profits up. Um, all that sort of thing must be kind of kept out of a properly operating job guarantee. It's also notable that the policy is, um, this I think is pretty universal to them, but you could make one that doesn't include this, that, that 
it is paid for at the federal level, but is administered at a local level so that local communities are making the decisions on what jobs they want people who are on the job guarantee in their area to be taking up. So what that community needs, what's the sort of work that's going to help them? Because of course, there can be quite a range in what is best going to help a community in all the different areas of Australia. I think that's kind of given it the quickest little run through. We could do a whole session just talking about the job guarantee and all its aspects, but we'll try not to let it take over all of this interview. So not so much the financial profit motive, but something that is socially productive for society. Yeah, I think it's a combination of, of yeah, it's it's giving va- it's giving value to the community, making use of the the labour available that there are people who who want to contribute their labour, they want to do something with it, and finding ways for that to benefit society as opposed to some of the things like mutual obligations at the moment, which involve people applying over and over and over often for jobs that either don't really exist or they're not even remotely qualified for and don't have a chance at all. But just doing this repetitive busy work that helps no one that doesn't actually provide anything beneficial to society, but people are spending all this time and effort on it. Let's, if we're going to pay people to do something, let's pay them to do something that helps is perhaps the simplest way of summing that up. Absolutely. And what would you say to people that say a job guarantee is just work for the doll on steroids? Um, I think it's a reasonable fear for people to have. It's um, it's it's not a, a concern that should just be lightly dismissed because anybody who's either been involved in that program or listened to people who have there's an awful lot of really uncomfortable horror stories from the sort of uh, experiences people have had on that. So I think for the job guarantee to be effective and do what it really needs to do and is supposed to do, that idea of it having to be jobs that are valuable and enriching and beneficial to the community has to be at the heart of it there. it's if, If you don't get that bit right, it loses a lot of the good aspects that can come with the job guarantee. So it's something that has a huge potential, but also has to be got right and has to be guarded quite, quite um, vigorously from being eroded in, in quite a similar way, I would say to programs like Medicare have to be, they've got great, great potential, but if we let our guard down, they really can be eroded and have a lot of their benefits taken away. And that sort of erosion comes out of a lot of political manoeuvring. And over the, last, over the last year or two, we've had a number of reported rorts, fossil fuel rorts with Angus Taylor, sports rorts with Bridget McKenzie, and car park rorts with Alan Tudge, and probably more I'm not remembering. This is under a Liberal National Coalition government of the past eight plus years, of which we've seen three different prime ministers. Now, are these reported rorts actually rorts, or are they just local members doing their jobs? No, no, I think they, they very, very clearly clearly are rorts. Um, particularly when you look at the evidence we've had of um, you know, the uh, colour-coded spreadsheets of where can we put this money to have the best effect on electoral results for us rather than where are we going to have the best benefit to the community. I mean, that's a pretty, pretty clear uh, demonstration that 
what the the job that these people uh, have been elected to do is not what they're doing. The um the responsibility of being a member of parliament um at the federal level to take it to take that example really is to um to serve the interests of the entirety of Australia. You're of Australia. You're you represent your electorate, but that doesn't mean that it should be just you try and get them everything and screw over everybody else. That's a really poor way of operating. And I think probably contravenes the oath that is taken um, upon um, entering into that position. But um, yeah, I think they, they, it's, it's pretty clear that they are rorts and that the, um, the behavior going on there is about ensuring electoral success for a particular party that's in power. So abusing the position of power and responsibility that they have. So I don't know if you can find a better uh, definition for rot than that, but I think it's pretty clear. And I think Australians in general find that it doesn't pass, you know, the pub test or the sniff test or whatever you want to say. It's pretty clear that people see that as something that's not appropriate and it does erode um, our trust in government as well, which is a, you know, it's not just, not being corrupt, but not being seen to be likely corrupt that is important for a democracy. When people think that the system is rigged against them and they disengage, democracy falls away. And again, it's something that we have to protect. So we protect democracy through the accountability of our members? Absolutely, absolutely. Trust is an important part of democracy functioning properly. If you feel like you can't trust your your elected member and that they're not operating in your interest then people disengage and stop connecting with it and when the system is supposed to be about representing the people and the people feel that they're not so that there's you know no point in contacting their member or having any interaction with them because they're never going to listen then the heart of the system started to fall away it sounds like connection or social connection is the heart of everything with our duty of care. And it's it's funny when we think about uh, the coronavirus pandemic and we talk about social distancing. I refuse to call it that. It's physical distancing. We want to keep that connection, keep our mm. connection with community and members. Which brings me back to the job guarantee, which you mentioned earlier. Yes, yes. Uh, and as I believe you know, the job guarantee idea came out of modern money theory which mm -hmm. part of this podcast is the Australian Real Progressives MMT podcast. So it's only fair that I ask about the worldwide inflationary about we are having, knowing that you're familiar with MMT. Mm -hmm. There's a number of criticisms, oh, excuse me. There are a number of criticisms out there that we have employed MMT during the coronavirus pandemic and it doesn't work. It's given us the inflationary about we've had. Do you have a response to that? Yeah, I think the, um, it's, a, it's an often repeated response, but the first response to that has to be that if you understand what MMT actually is, it's not a series of instructions, so you can't employ MMT. MMT is a description of how a certain type of economic system operates. So it's a description of it. It's not a thing that you've done or not. So that's the first sort of obvious part of it. If you think that someone's doing MMT, then you don't understand MMT and you've got a bit more reading to do. But um, putting sort of that that whole uh, aspect of it aside, when it comes to the, the inflationary thing, I think the idea that 
the inflation um, that we're sort of uh, aspects that we're seeing caused mainly by fiscal policy, but sort of wanting to ignore the massive um, uh, impacts of the pandemic plus, you know, war in Europe and um, all number of natural disasters and things like that is kind of, it's, it's hard to give it much credit as a view if you're sort of uh, coming from, from that sort of approach. I mean, particularly the, the pandemic is the big one. What that's done to supply chains, the amount of supply shocks that that's introduced. Um, when you look at uh, war in Europe and, um, you know, Ukraine, the the yellow in the flag is supposed to represent their uh, their um, vast wheat fields and the amount of um, sort of food production that comes out of Ukraine then being interrupted. Of course, that's going to have economic effects and to suggest that sort of that's coming just as a result of um, of either fiscal or monetary policy on its own doesn't really stand up particularly well, I don't think, to a even a even quite a casual glance. So, I think to sum it up, um, you can you can you can liken it, I think, in many ways to uh, a more proper understanding of um, when people like to talk about inflation. They like to talk about in Zimbabwe, and that's a pretty good example. Zimbabwe was a strong agricultural producer and when a number of factors changed that and devastated its its agricultural output the uh the increases in inflation came along before the things like increase in deficit spending in general mostly that was a response to the inflation the out of control inflation that was already in practice and i think that's got a lot of parallels probably to what's going on at the moment. It's the effects of having a huge impact on production levels across the globe is going to have an effect on these sort of things. And that a lot of the, any, any increase in deficit spending that you're seeing across the globe at the moment compared to before these inflationary hikes are fueled by having to deal with the the crises that we're having. So it's not a thing that's just cropped up. It's they're a response, not a cause, I think. So a lot of political actions have caused supply-side issues. Um, well, political actions, but also um, non-political, you know, physical actions. The, uh, the things that, I mean, I suppose you could say that um, all the sort of border closures and um, reductions on people movement and product movement and shipping and cargo and things like that um, have been instituted by governments and I suppose have been, a lot of them are a choice. So you could call them a political decision like that. And, you know, war, I suppose you can definitely say is a political decision, but political in that sense, but brought on by the events of the world. Yes, we've got to be very careful that we're paying attention to a system. These events are systemic. Mm. And finally, last of all, what is it your decision to run for the Federal Electorate of Higgins? And what experiences have you had that made you passionate enough to run in this upcoming election? Yeah, it's a good question. I certainly spend a lot of my life thinking that running for elected office is one of the last things I'd ever actually want to do. So to have come around on that, um, one of the, the the major things in, in, in that realm is I've had the feeling 
the almost certainty all of my voting life that I could say anything to my local member. I could provide them with any amount of strong argument, evidence that this is what I think they should be doing. And it would not matter one bit. They were going to follow the party line that was decided in Canberra by the leadership under the influence of donors and lobbyists. And that's what they were going to do every day of the week. What I and the people around me and the people I care about in this community wanted or needed or thought was important didn't matter one bit. It was never going to shift their position. So, and I think that's quite a, a common feeling in amongst Higgins. And I think certainly a lot of, a lot of other electorates across Australia, the feeling that, you have no ability almost to influence your local member. They're going to toe the party line almost no matter what. And also seeing in that view, the government making just constantly decisions that so clearly aren't in the interests of the wider community or the people that they're supposed to be representing. And then you look at the donations that they get and the lobbying that gets done and what they do lines up really neatly with the interests of the people who are throwing money into their pockets and things like that. And when you see that sort of thing happening, it's it's hard not to get fired up and to get angry and disappointed and all sorts of emotions you can talk about it that um, fire you up and can end up pushing you towards action like uh, standing for, for election yourself. So I suppose that's really the heart of, of why I'm why I'm running. So essentially, be the change you want to see. Absolutely, yeah, that's that's a perfect phrase. I have I've I've used that myself in explaining it to people. So it's obviously the one that I'm um something that's sitting there right for me. I had spent a lot of time complaining about the way things were going and saying that I thought things could be done much much better. And I had to get to that point of saying, well, maybe I need to put up or shut up now and actually start getting out there and doing something, not just saying this is not good enough, but putting my money where my mouth is, um, so to speak. Well, Andrew, I've very much enjoyed this conversation and I hope to have you back again one day. All right. Thanks very much, Darren. Thank you for your time. That's it for today. Have a modern money day. This is Darren Quinn with Australian Real Progressives. Think big, think different. Think MMT. cannot pay for anything yet taxes are important they impose morality they also control inflation and of course they drive the currency about the resources it has domestically. It provisions itself by making people do all that it needs. Then pay the money which the people can do with it as they please. And this is what we lovingly call debt-free savings. 